Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Koselia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I am joined, as always, by Hui Chen. Hi, Hui. Hi, Zach. Hi, everyone. Hui, it's just us today. It sure is, but we're going to do something fun. This is what compliance professionals, at least the ones I know, uh, like to do, which is tell some war stories. Now, this is typically done in an outing, um, probably sitting over some food and beverages. But uh, I don't have beverages right now since it is uh, morning for me. I only have my morning fruit shake. Those who are listening, uh, you might want to have a beverage if you're not in a car listening to this. Definitely. I hope that you all take way up on that suggestion. Have a drink, have some food, and let's share some stories. Some of the most valuable things I've learned have come from uh, challenges that were tough to go through at the time, right? right. So I thought we would start by, by you know, talking about some stories um, about just access to a seat at the table type of uh, type of challenges. So I was new in a in a global role for an anti-bribery and corruption position. The first thing I did when I went into that position was to do a program analysis to see what the gaps were, what are the things that we have, what are the things that we need to build, and all of those. So I charted those findings in a very lovely color-coded chart. Um, So I broke the program into various elements, um, and some had green, indicating that we already had those, and some were yellow, which were the ones that that are in flight, and uh, red are the ones that we didn't have. So this is the kind of familiar color scheme for companies that have audit reports that are done that way. And not surprisingly, at least not to me for this particular organization, it was a, it was a pretty red document, right? So when this was done, my boss, who was essentially the head of the uh, compliance function, he decided that he would present to the one of the many committees in the in the company. I was not allowed to go. He went. And apparently from the report that he brought back was the color charts got a lot of attention. People were nervous. They were asking what needed to be done and are there actions that we need to take right away. And the only action they did take was to send it to uh, another risk committee consisting of mostly the same people. To this day, I can't tell you what really is the difference between the, the two committees, right? So so this time I was allowed to go to the second committee, but I was instructed to print that chart in grayscale, no colors. So it got no reaction at all. So think about the human brain's visceral reaction to colors, colors like red, yellow, and green. Um, so that that to me was, was quite uh, an interesting lesson in itself. So one of the committee members during the meeting said that his counterpart at a competitor business thought anti-bribery and corruption was their biggest risk, which I took to be something of a encouraging sign because he was relaying um, a peer organization's recognition of this risk. So before I I could say anything to it, 
the chair of this committee responded to this comment by saying, your peer at this competitor organization must have nothing to do. So then there was a whole series of committees and stakeholder meetings that followed as I tried to present what should be our priorities. And after, after those experiences, I decided I, you know, I really want to just narrow it down. Two things that are very concrete, that are very doable. And I decided those two things was anti-bribery and corruption training for senior management, which had not been done for in years. In fact, had never been, been done as a as a specific training um, for the for the senior leadership. And, and based the, on the feedback from your committee meeting, maybe something that would be a good idea to do. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I said. Uh, so I said that's one thing. The second thing was really a review of the manual payment system, which was something I identified fairly early on that. They had a manual payment system where essentially almost all controls could be bypassed. And I wanted to make sure that was reviewed and, and controls put it put in place. Um, since after that meeting, my function was rarely allowed to go to most of the senior management meetings. Mm. None of these things got any traction. The only sort of optimistic moment I had was in a private meeting that I had with the head of legal, I relayed to him my concerns. And he did say that he really wanted to put that on the audit committee's agenda to discuss. It never materialized, but I don't think it was for lack of effort on his part. He himself was ultimately shortly thereafter forced out of the organization. So there was a lot of political stuff going on in organizations. And I think that's something you also have to recognize. Whatever you're experiencing is part of the, the bigger picture. And there was clearly a lot of frustration that I experienced in terms of not being able to get traction uh, or even access to the, to the table. But I think what I learned from that was the importance of building one-on-one -on -one relationships with stakeholders. And, you know, whether it was that conversation with the head of legal or later I built relationship with one of the business heads who whose voice was strong. And when I could get her to be concerned about things, she would be the one raising it. So, you know, seat at the table, some, it does have to be earned. But sometimes structurally, you just don't have it. What I learned from the experience, the better way there is to earn it through your private relationships, uh, work on people one-on-one. -on -one. The structure doesn't allow you, but you can make friends, you can make contacts, and you can build those relationships. Yeah. I mean, I, I very much have experienced that myself. When I first went to China um, in my prior, my prior in-house life, I had this almost naivete that here we were at an organization that valued ethics and compliance as much as it did and does. And so I thought that that necessarily gave me uh, a voice of authority on some of these topics. And so when I saw an opportunity to improve or where I saw an opportunity for us to try something, um, I just sort of assumed, well, I'm going to come in here, I'm going to share my ideas and we're going to do it. And I've described it before as sort of like coming in like a wrecking ball, when in reality, what I needed to do, 
and what I learned over time was that it, it takes a much softer touch. It takes diplomacy and it takes understanding the political environment and it takes um, building, as you said, personal relationships in order to actually get things done. You gotta play a much more nuanced game to accomplish some of the stuff that we're trying to accomplish as compliance folks. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think I learned that um, through years of perhaps being a wrecking ball. Um, I, you know, and particularly I, I had come in house from the background of having been a federal prosecutor. And when you're a prosecutor, you have a lot of power. Um, and uh, you are used to those hardline tactics when I think about um, cross-examination lessons that I had, you know, I had taken as a uh, as a prosecutor, a, a skillful cross-examination is really built by tiny little steps um, where you lull sort of the witness into some sense of safety and start slowly divulging the information that you want them to do. And it's a skill that I have used in investigations, but sometimes it's a skill that we forget to use in daily interactions. Now, let me just, just make sure I, cl I clarify myself. It's this, the purpose here when, is not to lull people into a false sense of safety um, so that you can spring something on them. Uh, but the, the purpose here is to build relationships. And you want people to feel comfortable with you to truly share their concerns with you and truly help you understand if they can't do something, why is it that they can't do it? And also having that big picture, your whatever you're facing is not the only thing that's going on in the organization. On this topic of access, relationship building, the trust that you have to build, whether it's day to day with your coworkers or in the context of you know an interview or in the context of an investigation or in the context of cross-examining somebody. I then take the conversation to this point about compliance officers sometimes feeling like they're perceived as the police. And I think part of the reason why folks are sometimes perceived as being the police is because sometimes we act like the police. And so it, it, it's this concept that pops up in so many different contexts in the work that we do. We want people to listen to us, but in order for people to listen to us and to take our ideas, they have to trust us. We want people to not view us as the police. We want them to view us as a partner. And in turn, we have to act like a partner. And the people on the other side of that equation have to be willing and open to our partnership. So it's really about the, the sort of duality of, of your role and your perceptions and their role and their perceptions that come together to hopefully, hopefully get us to a place where there is trust and where we are partners and we, where we do have a seat and access. Um, but it takes both sides being intentional uh, about their approach in order for that to actually happen. You know, you remind me of a colleague, as many compliance people do have law enforcement backgrounds. Sometimes they've come straight from a law enforcement position. And this particular colleague, every time I'm in the same meeting with him, he would begin his self-introduction by saying, I'm a former federal prosecutor. And uh, oftentimes, you know, we're doing international work. I mean, he's saying these to people who don't know what that means. To the extent that it did register, it was exactly that police message mm. that, that literally I I am the police. I just want you to know that that's part of my identity and this is what I'm bringing to the table. Whenever I talk to colleagues who have come 
through that transition, I always, always say, just be very careful that the context is very different and you, you know, want to be mindful of how you present yourself. I think that's something that a lot of, a lot of compliance professionals encounter, particularly investigators who are, you know, sitting in sort of a, a, a an in-between world between both wanting to partner with the business and having a really difficult task at hand in, in you know, finding truth and you know, fact finding. Yeah, one of the ways that I tried to combat that when I was in a dedicated investigations role was whenever I went to a market, uh, I would make sure to stop in and see the business leaders, particularly if I had nothing to report, mm. particularly if I had no reason to do so, because I want to change that that reaction of seeing Hui Chen is bad news, right? Um, so I want them to get used to me dropping in their office, chatting about how's business, how's your family. In the earlier few visits when I would do that, you you could see their expression. They're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like you must have stopped in my office for, for some other reason exactly. that's not welcome by me, right? Why did she spend time with me? And and there, there was nothing. And ultimately, you know, if you do that long enough, you begin to build that rapport and you begin to build some trust. And those will come a long way uh, when you really need them to take some hard actions. Absolutely. It reminds me of something else that I often hear you say, which is, you know, in the context of it, you know, presenting to the DOJ or to law enforcement or to regulators that let's not forget they are human, they're people. Let's not forget that compliance professionals, um, investigators are people. And let's not forget that the business and the people who we support are people too. And doing exactly what you did is such a wonderful, normal, very human way of reminding people that were more than just deliverers of bad news. One of the things that I have found, whether it's working with the companies or working with DOJ, people tend to not think of organizations as consisted of all individuals. In DOJ, I would hear people say, well, the company is like this. And in the industry and working with companies, I always, you know, we always hear people saying DOJ wants this. DOJ thinks that. DOJ is not one person. Yeah. DOJ is made up of a lot of people. Everybody in any organization has their own perspectives, their own opinions. And I think when we generalize like that on both sides, we really suffer a lot of the the insights and perspectives you can get. So, you know, I experienced this when I was in a company that was under actually at the time multiple monitorships. And the monitor would always try to get the view from the compliance function. But again, compliance function has a head of compliance. You know, that head of compliance has uh, his leadership team. And his leadership team have their, you know, the people on their teams, they all have different perspectives and opinions. So we had the situation where the um, the monitor circulated a draft report and that described my function. The monitor sent it to the head of compliance, head of compliance sent it to his leadership team, and we we're all to comment on the on the monitor's draft report. And I said, I concur with the observations noted in there. The head of the compliance function says, no, I do not agree with the, the monitor's observations. And I want you to write um, the following. 
And I refused. He's like, you know, I, I want you to say that you agreed, basically, in an email. And I remember calling a friend of mine who is, uh, who, you know, had worked in housing with, but was then working for a firm. And remember saying, what, what should I say? And basically he said, just reply to the email and say, we'll have to agree to disagree because you need to document that you didn't agree with his proposed answer. I cannot let a record be there where I had agreed to it, but I also didn't want to get into a continuous sort of argument over this that had already been ongoing for, for a few rounds. So when I was at DOJ and working with monitors, this is something I cautioned a lot with the monitors. Just be mindful of the organization. You're talking to the heads of functions, but are you really getting the full picture by talking just to the heads of functions? When right. you're circulating your results or you know uh, whatever, getting reactions from people, you're getting them from one set of people who have power over other people who may have different opinions. I mean, I want to... I want to actually piggyback off of that to talk about a related issue building off of the idea that not all people in an organization have the same view. Not all cultures within an organization are the same. Um, and that is that I think that it's like, there's like this human nature to try to reduce things to something. We see it in the behavioral science space too, not just, you know, compliance. We see it in all kinds of areas that we that we focus on. And it's that I've heard in my experience a lot. It's the words, it's too complicated. It's too complicated. Yeah. We need to simplify it. It's too complicated. Um, whether we're talking about a policy, whether we're talking about a training, whether we're talking about a system, whether we're talking about a presentation, uh, whether we're simply talking about like a strategy or a set of priorities, it's too complicated. Sometimes we do overcomplicate things. There's no question. Sometimes though, when we say it's too complicated, what we actually mean, I think, is it's not clear. So it's not that we need to make it less complicated. It's that we actually need to just be clearer about what we're trying to convey in the world of a complicated set of things. Um, and then as we've also talked about on this podcast before, sometimes we use the word complicated when what we actually are talking about is something that is complex. But whatever the case, I feel like sometimes in the world of compliance, in the world of DEI and the world of organizational culture and in the world of just broader risk management, all of these various areas that we work, um, we, we say it's too complicated um, when in reality, what we really need to be doing is acknowledging that sometimes things are complicated or sometimes things are complex and to not try to reduce it to one thing, but to instead like actually give whoever our audience is or whoever our partners are the courtesy to believe that they actually can understand the complicated and the complex. I feel like what I'm getting out of what you're saying here is we want to embrace the complexity and the complications in our thinking, but yes. be clear and simple in our communications. Yes. And you know what you just did? You were just clearer and simpler in your communication of the complicated and complex concept that I was articulating. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> that 
strangely reminds me of some of the lessons I've gotten from uh, working with people in risk assessment. Mm. Um, so I reviewed a risk assessment done by uh, a, a company. It was done by a survey method. It was a almost a hundred question survey that was sent throughout the organization for people to complete. Sounds, so, com- sounds complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. You're the general manager of a market. You have a lot of responsibilities. You got to meet your sales target. You got to manage your people. And here from the headquarter comes a hundred questions asking you about whatever. So are you really going to do it yourself? Hmm. No. Are you going to give it to your most able lieutenants to do? No. You're going to give it to the young intern who just came. Then the other problem is these ask a lot of questions that are basically people's opinions rather than facts. So do you believe you have enough budget? Well, that's a belief. You know, what, what is enough? Do you have enough headcounts for this, right? Same kind of problem. Uh, do you trust people? So a lot of these survey questions for this particular exercise, which was called a risk assessment exercise, I expected it to be much more quantitative than than sort of uh, subjective in, in this way. Then there were also lots of questions that were open to interpretation. Questions like, do you have third parties? Well, what's a third party? You know, I don't know what a third party is, so I'm just going to answer no. Or I think third parties are distributors. I think third party are suppliers. All of these are undefined, and it leaves it to uh, to for people to you know for the for the poor intern in the dark room to interpret what what that means. So when they got back the risk assessment results, they got very strange outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So for some of the high risk markets, they came back looking pretty good because people were feeling pretty good about it. But for some of the uh, lower risk markets, and and I will name one, which was UK, right? UK, you would not traditionally think from the anti-bribery and corruption perspective as a high risk country. It came back to a middle ranking because the people in the market who answered those uh, were much more critical of what was needed and what did or did not exist. So the the result came back very puzzling to 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 people who were expecting certain types of results. But the question was diving into why this was happening and then working with the risk assessment team to revise their thinking and even more importantly to to set people up for the expectation that since now that I'm in the role. And I am doing my job to educate people about what ABC risks look like. And we're revising the risk assessment methodology to make it more accurate. As a result of us doing these things, many market score will be worse next year. Hmm. My very first uh, compliance position was, again, an inaugural role in the field where there had been no compliance officer on the ground uh, in this particular location. And I told people right away that if I do my job right, the number of investigations will increase. It will increase, but at some point, hopefully, it will plateau and will begin to come down. But that's going to take a few years. And that's not a sign, a bad sign. So the lessons in here is everything from how people understand 
whatever you put out there to setting people up for the for the right expectations yeah um, and understanding data in in context the last thing that you said is just so critical because i think that there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about data and analytics in the context of compliance it's often focused on as we've talked about before big shiny exciting tools and technology words like artificial intelligence and machine learning and uh, advanced analytics, uh, predictive analytics are, are, are thrown around. But when we actually begin to take a more thoughtful, intelligent, um, intentional approach to data analytics and compliance, it actually should be as much, if not more about what you just said, which is we're going to use data to talk about how many matters we've received, how many became investigations, where they're coming from, the nature of them. And we could just put that data out there and dump it on someone, but that's not actually a really great approach. That's not a real path to success. We've got to analyze it. We've got to interpret it. We've got to tell a story behind it. And as you said, it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, the trend is going up. And so that's bad. When in reality, the trend going up may be good. Now, if the trend continues to go up forever, well, that's something and may very well warrant attention and, and intervention. But but it, it requires just some very simple analysis of the data. Same with the risk assessment example. It's not just about um, how to analyze the data, but it's about how to incorporate quantitative data into that risk assessment process. I personally am a fan um, of collecting qualitative inputs, of getting people's perceptions and beliefs, especially people who are knowledgeable and an authority on the things that we're asking them about when it comes to risk assessment, whether that's compliance and risk professionals or the business who may be experiencing it firsthand. But we've got to couple it with quantitative data. And we've got to just be thoughtful about the ways in which we ask those questions or the ways in which we incorporate that data. This to me is as much about kind of how to structure a questionnaire, how to collect data in a thoughtful way and how to use data and interpret it and analyze it as it is about anything else. Oh, I, I completely agree. I, th I think a good assessment, whether it's a risk assessment or a culture assessment, really needs to have both the quantitative and qualitative. Yeah narrative uh, component. But I think the trick is thinking about what are the right questions that, you know, to, to be asking and what are the type of things that you ask quantitative data for and what are the things that you ask qualitative data for, right? So a question about, you know, how many third parties do you have? That's where you want a quantitative answer is you want Absolutely. how many? You don't want to say, do you believe you have third parties? Exactly. But do you believe the company's disciplinary process is fair? There is a quantitative component to that. You can look at the company's investigative and disciplinary data to get a perspective on it. But even more important in this case is people's perception. Yes, And that's where your narrative qualitative data comes in as far more critical. Yes. Wait, I want to I switch topics here a little bit. Um, and talk about compliance as an expertise and maybe dovetailed with that uh, compliance in larger organizations where things may be more decentralized. One of the things that I've seen from time to time, um, and this is not the rule, there are plenty of places where this isn't the case. You see compliance treated as um, something that anyone can do. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's rocket science, 
<laughs> but but you know it's treated as though it's it, it it's not the expertise the the discipline in and of itself that it is um and 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 i i say that because i i think it's distinguished from some other similar disciplines within an organization that don't get treated that way i don't think that anyone thinks that they can be you know the lawyer for the organization unless they actually have those skills i don't think people feel like they could be the human resources person for an organization without a certain set of skills or that they could be an auditor without a certain set of skills but i think from time to time and more frequently than i'd like i think that folks think well anyone could do compliance and so sometimes that has a real impact on the way in which the program is perceived within the organization, the way in which the talent is treated, and also the impact that the program ultimately has. I'm very grateful, and I think the compliance profession owes a debt um, to to Andrew Weissman, who was the fraud, head of the fraud section uh, that created the compliance council expert position that I held. Um, and the reason is his thinking behind that was precisely to recognize compliance as an area of expertise. It's not that any prosecutor can just say, oh, I know, I can look at this compliance program and I can tell whether it's good or bad. Um, not that they're not smart people or good lawyers or excellent prosecutors, but the same prosecutors, you wouldn't expect them to say, well, you know, I can just do forensic accounting. Um, I can do, you know, medical examination. Um, those are specialized fields that contribute to building the cases and understanding the cases that they, they prosecute. Andrew's thinking behind creating this position was precisely to recognize that, that compliance is an area of expertise, that it requires somebody who, who's been in companies and understand how it operates in reality and understand what it requires as skill sets, more than just legal skill sets to come in um, to the role to, to have that recognition. Unfortunately, I think the profession is still very much struggling with, with this. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's something that we need to continually build on by uh, doing the kind of things that we're doing by highlighting the skill sets that's really involved. It really is a an interdisciplinary, cross-functional expertise that, you know, in a way, very few people in, in organizations have. So when you're able to help people understand that, then that really can add a lot more power um, and to, you know, to to what we do is recognizing that this is not just a legal regulatory exercise. This is not just, you know, some messaging and putting together some training sessions with no measurement. It's, it is about the company's values. It's about how people behave. And it's about the, um, you know, the culture that you're trying to build in a company. Yes. Couldn't agree more. What else is on your mind today? And we're also thinking about the, the the challenges to the to the profession. The other thing that I always had struggled with when I was in house was I oftentimes would be held responsible for all kinds of things over which I had no control. Hmm. So there would be an audit or um, some kind of assessment, and then it says, you know, there is improvements needed in payments or re recruiting practices um, or in marketing tactics. 
I don't own any of those. And in one of the, you know, large organizations I worked with, I don't even own training. So, you know, the, the, I would be given the goal to grow training out within one year, but I'd be told that you don't own training. Training has to be delivered by the training department um, on their schedule. And so it's about having to work with, you know, particularly in large organizations with all these different stakeholders um, who may or may not understand why you want to do this and who are oftentimes not even held accountable. I remember a member of my team uh, had gone to the the um, the head of finance, finance operations to talk about this manual payment issue um, to try to understand it and get better control over it. Um, and this uh, the head of the financial operations said to him, "We've been doing this for 150 years. Who the heck does Wei Chen think she is to want to change that?" So. A couple of things that that I you know learned from this was one uh, set again set expectations. So even as the audit reports are being done, I'm working with auditors to make clear that they have to be clear about who is accountable for some of the remediations that's recommended. It cannot all fall on my function, which has no ability to implement without other stakeholders full input. So unless they're also held accountable, it can't be done. And that has to be reflected. So making sure you work with them to get the ownerships really clearly reflected. If you can't, and this is another common theme that many compliance officers would know about, document it, document it in your own way. You know through your emails, through your memo to self, all of those things, you document why certain things cannot be done in the schedule that you were told to do it. A lot of this is about protecting yourself. Well, Hui, should we end with maybe some top line suggestions or recommendations or better ways for for those that are listening? I think we've had um, we've hit on a few themes, you know, so one is building relationships. Two is documenting, uh, documenting, documenting, documenting. Three is listening to people and treating them as individuals and not a collective. I've got embracing complexity and complication, but ensuring that your message is clear and that you're communicating in ways that folks understand that which may be complex or complicated. I We didn't really talk too much about this, but it's something that always is on my mind, um, given my experience and given some of what I've done in the past, but being you know brave enough to be innovative in the world of compliance, there are a lot of folks out there who, who are and who are doing some really wonderful stuff. Um, I think sometimes it feels like the job doesn't allow for it, but I think it's got to. I think it's got to. I mean, we've built this business. We've framed this podcast around the idea that there are better ways. And so encouraging people to look for them is definitely something that's very much on my mind. And, you know, I think being a little introspective by that, I mean, you know, if I'm being treated like the police asking, am I acting like it? If I find that folks aren't trusting me, what am I doing to engender that trust? Or what am I doing to show that I trust you? 
maybe I don't. And, and, and that's part of, part of the issue. But like, I think looking within was a big part of, of my journey and experience as well. Absolutely. I completely agree. And one area we haven't touched on, it's probably because it deserves its own episode is investigations. Um, It's too big a topic. You and I both, uh, we met doing investigations and there are so many war stories to tell on that. So we should do that. Let's do an episode on that. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's do another episode just on investigations and all the, the war stories and Listeners, we also invite you to share your stories with us. Um, send us an email. Tell us some, you know, anonymized war stories that you like to share. And uh, we want this to be a community where we can Absolutely. share. Absolutely. And let me just say also, I mean, we shared from our experience, some of our war stories, some of our perceptions and experiences. I just want to be like totally clear to those who are listening, who are compliance officers or who are on a compliance team. You're doing really hard work, sometimes under less than ideal circumstances. And uh, I admire those of you who have chosen this path. And uh, I know firsthand, and I know Huey does too, just how hard it is, but also how rewarding and wonderful it can be, because it really is a great discipline and very much is its own area of expertise. It sure is. And I I have seen also a lot of compliance uh, colleagues who feel very beaten down. And believe me, I've been there. And there are rewarding aspects to this work. And a lot of it is finding small victories along the way. Thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.